1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, if you didn't happen to bring a Bible today, that is okay. All the verses we'll be covering will be projected on the screen above me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, learning how to walk. This issue of walking, I find it one of the most fascinating word pictures in all of Scripture, okay, when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to us understanding about the Christian life and how God sees it. Now, when I think of learning how to walk, I think, of course, of little children. It wasn't that long ago where our youngest grandchild, Aubrey, or Obs for short, she was learning to walk, and it was fascinating to watch her learn, as it is with every child. But of course, we were with her more so we could see the different, you know, the mind going. And then, you know, first they're on their hands and knees, and then they start the rocking, and then they start sitting, and then they start, you know, all these things. And then there's kind of the, the balance portion of walking, learning how to keep your balance. And then, and then once she started walking, Okay, I kind of had a little nickname for her, not so much now, but then it was saddle legs. Because she kind of walked around like, you know, like, kind of like this, like she'd been on the saddle too long. But I think she's past that now with all the walking that she's been doing. But you know, there's a learning process involved in that. You don't, you don't go from laying on your stomach or on your back and all of a sudden you just hop up and you start walking. No, you have to learn. You have to get your footing. It's a growth process. Now the word walk, it means to go here and there, to conduct one's life, to live. Some people say to walk means to, it has to do with how we behave, and that would be accurate. Walking is really, you think about the process. What is walking? It's taking many steps forward. That's the idea of walking. And I think, personally, that's why our feet point in the direction that they do. Aren't you glad, by the way, that your feet both point in the same direction? Aren't you glad that they point in the same direction as your eyes see? Wouldn't it be bad if your feet pointed backwards? Yeah, that'd be rough. That'd be rough. But they don't. They point forward, okay? And, and our walk really is the direction of the life that we live each day. If I was to talk to you, if I was to say to you, how is your Christian walk? You know, that doesn't mean necessarily that you go out for walks and you quote scripture verses, although that's a great thing, all right? Your Christian walk is how is your Christian life? How is your life going as a believer? The Bible has a lot to say about the walk of the Christian. Now, at the beginning of this message today, I would like to address something very, very important, okay? It seems today that there are a lot of people emphasizing one truth or another from the Word of God. Emphasizing things is fine, but emphasizing certain things to the exclusion of others is a problem because that is not the way God intends His Word to be. All of Scripture is important according to Scripture. And so when we only focus on one thing, and I don't care what it is, it is not going to end up giving a proper view of the mind of God. It's not going to let us see as the Lord does, okay? This is very important. This is fine, again, as long as we do not exclude the rest of the truth found in Scripture. Let's be sure that we preach, as the Bible talks about, the whole counsel of God. 
the whole counsel of God. By the way, that's why in our church, while we do do topical messages, and I'm for topical messages, we are a church that is committed to verse by verse preaching and teaching through the scriptures because every word of God is pure. We need to learn it all. And if you're only topical, there's a lot of the times what happens is that your favorite subject is the thing that you always end up talking about that to the exclusion of other things. Well, if, if that's the case, then the people in the church are not getting what God intended them to get in scripture. And so we need to have it all, or we need to be preaching and teaching it all, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, notice Paul is writing to Christians here. He calls them brethren. These are saved people, just like he was. They had trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Apart from works, they were not trying to earn their way to heaven. They already had heaven. You don't have to earn your way to heaven. Number one, you can't earn your way to heaven because we're already sinners, we're already disqualified, good works won't save anyway. And so they weren't trying to earn their way to heaven, they weren't trying to keep their salvation. He's just saying this, hey brethren, brothers, sisters in Christ, now that you're saved, I've got some things I wanna tell you. And so that is what he's doing here. Furthermore then, we beseech you brethren and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us, here's our phrase, how you ought to walk, Do you see that? Now, obviously, it's not talking about your physical cadence, okay? It's talking about spiritually, your life, the way you live your life. How you ought to walk, and you notice here's a key in how we're supposed to do it, and to please God, and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave of you by the Lord Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Commandments. All right? We've got several aspects having to do with this life that we have to live as believers. And the first thing I want you to understand, and it really is outlined in the text, verses one and two, the call, there's a call to an obedient life, an obedient life. Now, let me again, let me parse this a little bit. It isn't you live an obedient life to the scriptures and you'll make it to heaven one day because you've been more obedient than you have disobedient, okay? We are not saved by good deeds. We are not saved by living right. You don't go to heaven based on how you live, and you don't go to hell based on how you live. Whether you go to heaven or hell is based on whether you trust in Jesus Christ as your payment for sin. We all have sin that needs to be paid for, okay? Jesus went to the cross, and when he died on the cross, he paid for our sins. Let me show you this, this hand representing you and me my wallet representing our sin. Here we are, we're all sinners. We all sin, all of us, including me. Yet God loves us, he hates our sin. Now heaven is a perfect place and for us to get there, we have to be sinless. How many of us are? None of us are sinless. Not in ourselves, none of us are sinless. We're sinners, the Bible says we've all sinned. God says our sin has to be paid for. We've broken God's laws, we've broken his commandments, And there's a penalty that goes with that. The wages of sin is death. We'd be eternally separated from God for all eternity if we were to pay for our own sin. Nowhere, I repeat, nowhere does the Bible say the wages of sin is good works. The wages of sin is going to church. The wages of sin is giving money 
trying to do your best, trying to live in a moral way, trying to keep the commandments. Nowhere does it say that is the payment for sin. Death is the only payment for sin. Our good works cannot save us. If from this day forward you said, you know what, I'm going to live a perfect life, I'm going to do the best I can, and surely God will look at me and say, well, boy, you've worked hard. Sure, I'll I'll let you into heaven. No, friend, the sin has to be gone. The sin has to be gone. You can pile on the good works and it won't take away the sin. Death is the only payment for sin. That's why Jesus came. He loves us so much, does not want us to spend forever separated from him. So he left heaven, took on flesh, God in the flesh, sinless. And when he went to the cross, he made the payment for all of our sins. And he did that. He paid for them all and rose from the grave, leaving us nothing left to pay for. He says this, if you will believe or put your faith in him that he made that payment for you, the moment you do, the payment he made is good on your behalf. He forgives you of all your sin. He cleanses you of all your sin. He makes you righteous in the eyes of God. And when you trust in him, he gives you everlasting life. Now, if when you trust in him, all your sins are taken care of, and they are, then what in the world could send a person who is sinless, who has the righteousness of God, what in the world could send them to hell? The truth of it is this, nothing, nothing. When you trust Christ, you're justified, the Bible says, from all things. Now, that is what it means to be a child of God. However, once we're saved, we're still left here. And so God is concerned, very concerned, about the life of his children. And he wants us to walk, live, according to the word of God. So we see in verses 1 and 2 the call to an obedient life. See, as believers, we should walk in obedience to God. This brings clarity to the issue of the Christian life when so much today is little more than mysticism and feelings. We should walk in obedience. Obedience is not a dirty word in light of Scripture. Some people today, unfortunately, that you know, they're champions of the gospel. But when you talk about Christians should live in obedience to God, they, they want to say, well, that's legalism. No, that's not legalism. It's the Bible. It says so. Look at it in verse 1. How you ought to walk to please God, verse 2, for you know what commandments, commandments we gave you. So this is the life we should live as believers, Let me give you an example. By the way, before I get to the example, but here's where a lot of people are today. Well, I I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like doing that. Well, I don't feel moved by God to do this or that. Friend, listen, if it is clearly written in Scripture, why are you going by your feelings? You ought to be going by what the Bible says, black and white. See, here's the thing. If you're going to go by your feelings, you're going to be held up. Because your sin nature is going to creep in there and corrupt your feelings, mess up your feelings. What you need to go by is what the Bible says, the black and white of Scripture. It's an issue of obedience. You might say, well, I don't don't feel much like obeying. Well, then, friend, you don't throw out what the Bible says. What you do is confess your sin of rebellion to God for feeling that way about Scripture. We ought to be obedient children. That's what the Bible says. Are you going to go to church today? Well, I don't feel like going to church today. What does that have to do with it? Now, if you've got the flu, I get it. Okay, if you're sick, really sick, I get it. Don't come to church. Stay home, rest. You should do that. That's, everybody gets that. Everybody understands that. 
But friend, if it's a matter of you just don't feel motivated, since when is your mot- how you feel as far as motivation goes, since when does that dictate the way you live your life? Yet that is many times the standard of Christians today, how they feel about something, about being obedient, uh, obedient children. By the way, we're going to see that in Scripture, that actual phrase in just a minute. Parents, those of you who are parents, those of us who are parents or who have parented, okay, a lot of, our, a lot of us have our children are, are grown and gone now. Let me ask you this. Since when do we excuse our children from obedience because of the way they feel towards what we've said? Try that with your kids. By the way, don't try that with your kids. Okay? Billy, Billy, uh, you need to clean up your room. Well, I just don't feel like it. Oh, okay. Well, you know, if you don't feel like it, it's okay. I mean, I don't want to be a legalist with you. What's a legalist? Oh, brother, watch out. Watch out. No, it's foolishness. Friends, we are children of God, those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior. Now, I believe in being motivated by the grace of God and the love of God and and all the different motivations. I think there's seven motivations in Scripture, okay? Being motivated by the right thing, I get that. But what about when you don't feel motivated? Do we then just put it in park, turn off the engine, and sit there? Then really, who's God? Is God God in that situation, or am I God? No, God is supposed to be God. So as believers, we should walk in obedience to the Lord, okay? Also, as believers, we should live to please God. Now, the word to please means to win the approval of. You might say, well, wait a minute. I have a, I have a problem with that. Boy, I'll tell you what. I didn't know this, but I'm touching on all kinds of false doctrines that are being taught today. Wait a minute. We don't have to win the approval of God. Well, I am supposed to live to please him. Now, don't, don't make this an issue between me and you or somebody else. Is that not what it says right there in verse 1? Is that not what it says? Take it up with God. How you ought to walk and to please God. To please God. Okay? To live in a way that gets his approval is the idea, to live in a way that is acceptable to him. Now, while it is true that we are accepted in Christ in light of eternity, we are loved no matter what. There's no question about that, okay? Yes, we're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. We're disciplined by grace. I get all of that. Still, friends, you can't grasp onto some concept over here where the full understanding of that concept brings other verses into it, you can't just take these verses and push the others aside. You have to take it all. It says here how you ought to walk and to please God, to live in a way that's acceptable to him. While it's true that we're accepted in Christ, it is not true that the Lord accepts everything we do. It is not true that God says, okay, sure, you're involved in this sin and that sin and all that. Well, you know what? But you're saved, so I'm good with that. God's not good with that. Are we still children of God? If you've trusted Christ as Savior, you're a child of God no matter what you do. No matter what you do. Just like our children, they were born into our family. Whether they behaved or whether they didn't behave, they were still our kids. It's the same thing in the family of God. But he's called us to obedience. Wouldn't you agree? That's what it says. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, it said this, we already covered it, but it said that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Colossians 1.10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walking worthy of God, living a life pleasing to God. This is not legalism, this is Bible. This is the life that his children are supposed to live. You know what, folks? Those of us who stand absolutely, uncompromisingly for the gospel of grace, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we will die for that message. That's what we're about. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we are not giving ammunition to those who believe in works for salvation towards us. When they look at us, they ought to see a difference in our lives. Not just us going around saying, well, I'm not saved by works. I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by grace. I'm eternally secure no matter what. Nothing can take away my salvation. Amen to that. But listen, if what we have is so great, the challenge to you and me is to manifest that greatness, to manifest our salvation to the world around us. It is incredible to think that many believers have the idea that the way they live does not matter to God. It does matter to God. God never, ever, ever condones sin. Never. Not only that, you notice under this call to an obedient life, as believers we should walk in obedience to God. As believers we should live to please God. We see that. Verses 1 and 2. And third under this, we should do it Look what it says, the text. We should do it how? More and more. This is a matter of Christian growth and faithfulness. The Lord wants his children to keep growing, to keep maturing, just like when we had our three beautiful daughters, okay? They came out, they were babies, and what do you expect a baby to do? Grow. You expect them to grow. You expect them to mature. Not just going from baby to toddler, and then to preschooler, and then to in elementary, and preteen, and teens, and et cetera, college age. All the way, all the way. Keep growing, keep growing, keep growing as a person. We should do it more and more. Look at verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. Does God want me to grow? Yes, it says it. Let's get on with it. Look at it. For this is the will of God even or literally your sanctification that you should abstain from fornication. Abstain from fornication, which leads us to our second point. We see the call to a separated life. First, we see the call to an obedient life, verses one and two. And then verse three, the call to a separated life. What does that mean? The word sanctify means to set apart, to set apart, okay? It's kind of like this. If I had my Bible... And let's say the Bible is among many books on a table, all right? To sanctify it would be to reach in, to get it, and to set it apart by itself. That's the idea of the word sanctify. Now, the point or the direction that sanctification takes, it means also to make pure and to make holy. Friend, God is in the business of making his children pure and holy in their walk. It's part of what it means to grow as a believer, we know that there are, of course, also this idea of sanctification, which is a 
it's a big word in scripture, but it's a very powerful word. Let me talk about it a couple minutes here. There are three aspects of that word sanctification. Okay, the first is there's past sanctification. Past sanctification, what do I mean by that? When we trust in Jesus Christ, we have been set apart from sin in light of eternity. Now we're still here physically, but in light of eternity, we've been set apart, we've been saved, we've been delivered, okay? So there's that past sanctification. This is a positional one that we have. Hold your place here and look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me say this. Those who hold to a grace plus work salvation, lordship salvation, MacArthurism, Piper, etc., the, the, uh, what's it, Francis Chan, some of these others, Chandler, a lot of these people, all right? They have a contradictory message. They'll say it's free, it's a gift, and then they say, but you have to live a committed life. No, friend, it, it can't be both. Listen, those of us who get it, who understand salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friend, those people who will look at those of us who believe that and want to accuse us of promoting carnality, their accusation should fall flat on its face when they look at our life, the way we live our lives. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, it's not going to be. Nobody's perfect. We all still sin. But what it means is this. They should not be able to level an accusation against us and it sticks because of our sinful, wicked living as the children of God. Can children of God live sinfully and wickedly? Yes. Should they? Absolutely not. Romans, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid How shall we that have died to sin live any longer therein? That's what we see. That's what we see. 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul lists a whole bunch of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then he says to those Corinthian believers, and such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified. Do you see it? You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. This is a past sanctification. When did it take place? The moment you trusted Christ the Savior, these things became yours. Reality in your life and my life. Hebrews 10 says, for by one offering, talking about the death payment Jesus made on the cross, for by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Perfected forever. In light of eternity, I'm perfect. However, in light of my everyday life, I'm certainly not. God wants me, by his grace, the way I live to come into harmony with the righteousness that he's given me in Christ. This is the Christian life, and there's ups and there's downs. I get that, okay? But as we go there, here's the perfect standard of God's righteousness. God wants me growing in godliness and becoming more and more like what he's given me in Christ. Will we ever achieve that in this life? We'll never totally achieve that. But we ought to be going that direction, wouldn't you agree? By the way, that's the direction our spiritual feet are pointed, if you want to call it that. So there's past sanctification, but there's also present sanctification. And that has to do with our Christian lives. As we live as believers, we are to become more and more set apart to the Lord from sin. This is a progressive sanctification. 
It's something that continues on. This is what it means. Listen, I'm not the same person that I was the day I got saved. I should have grown in godliness since then. I, God should be doing something in my life. And if, if I'm still alive or Jesus hasn't come back in 10 years, in 10 years I should be more godly than I am today in my character. That's what God's trying to accomplish in me. Am I cooperating with him or not? Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Very important passage with this. 1 Peter chapter 1. And here's those, uh, the very concepts Paul has touched on. Peter says the same thing in different words, but he's covering the same ground. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, it says as what kind of children? Obedient, obedient children, not rebellious, not flesh-driven. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. He's referring to when they didn't know any better, when they were lost. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And the King James word conversation doesn't just mean talk, it means manner of life, the way you live your life. Because it is written... Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now I can hear it now because I've heard it so many times since I've been saved, particularly since I've been a pastor. Well, the Bible says that, but uh, I can't be holy like God is holy. And so what they do is they use the fact that in this life you'll never be perfect, they use that as an excuse to live a carnal, wicked life. Now that's, friends, God says what he means and means what he says. No, this is not something that can be accomplished by our own willpower and that alone. This is something, though, that by the grace of God, when we are under the control of the Holy Spirit, we can live a holy life. We can live a godly life. And it ought to manifest itself more and more if we are concerned about what we should be concerned about. And then there's ultimate sanctification, ultimate sanctification. What is that? It means one day when we are taken home to be with the Lord, we will finally and completely be set apart even from that sin nature that still causes us problems at times. Okay? We are sinners still. As We're forgiven. We have eternal life. We're children of God, but we are sinners still, aren't we? We still do things wrong. Friend, there's a day coming either at the rapture or at death when we are going to be completely separated from our old sin nature and we will be in the presence of God. Hallelujah to that. Hallelujah to that. That will be our state or our condition forever. Let's go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we see that there is the call to an obedient life Verses 1 and 2, there's the call to a separated life, sanctified life, verse 3. And then third, there's a call to a pure life. You might say, well, well, what is the difference between a sanctified life and a pure life? Well, they're very similar and they're certainly related. I think the idea here, the call to a pure life, is emphasizing the details of what that means. In other words, here are some specifics, some examples of that. And we see it in verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, it says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, his body, in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, okay, even as the Gentiles which know not God. 
You notice he says here, well, verse six, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified for God hath not called us unto uncleanness. That means moral uncleanness, but unto holiness, unto holiness. You notice back in verse three, when we're talking about a call to a pure life in verse three, it says abstain from fornication, abstain from fornication. Now, in, if you are, are single, I mean, just be honest with you. Okay, friend, if you're single, that means you don't live together. Men and women I'm talking about, you don't live together if you're single. Well, of course, nowadays it would be any kind of moral perversion. Okay, we've got the homosexual community and all that. God says it's sin. It's sin. It's what the Bible says. Now, it's sin like every other sin is sin in the sense of that it does not have God's approval. It is missing the mark. But at the same time, it is sin. It doesn't matter what society says or tries to redefine things. But it's the same with men and women. Men and women are not to be living together in the sense of having fornication, sex with one another. It's not supposed to be only in marriage. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, we've got, we live in America today, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of people who don't even know that. They don't even know it. They don't have a clue. Why? Because they haven't been raised right because of this society in which we live today to where that's an acceptable thing. Let me tell you, when I was growing up in the 60s, the idea of people living together was shunned by society. I mean, you were shunned. Now, if you say anything, you're the one who's shunned. It's completely flipped from what it used to be. Completely flipped. The call to a pure life, fornication, sex outside of the marriage relationship. We are to abstain from all kinds of sexual impurity. Now, this would also include not only sexual immorality outwardly, but sexual immorality in our hearts. We have an epidemic today in the area of pornography. Pornography is is fornication in the heart. Pornography is sexual immorality in the heart. It may not be acted out on, but if a person's involved in that, that is a perverting, perverting sin and people involved in it. Even once they recognize how bad it is, it is extremely difficult for them to have victory in that area. I've counseled with lots of people on this. Very difficult. So I would need to, you need to be very careful what you look at. What you look at on the internet, what you look at in books or magazines, what you look at in movies and so forth. Because those things get in your mind, you're not going to get them out. Not anytime soon. It's wrong. It's wrong. God says, abstain. That, by the way, that means stay away from it. Stay away from it. Yet it's epidemic today. I cannot tell you how many people have a problem today with this issue of pornography. And by the way, smartphones don't help it. And by the way, parents, if your kids have smartphones, you are dealing with disaster. So easy for those kids. If they're not already addicted to it, that they will be addicted to it. It's not enough just tell them, don't go there. There's got to be some safeguards put in. Verse 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor 
not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. See, the life of perversion is a life characteristic of those who are lost. It should not be the life of one who is a child of God. The Gentiles which know not God, the lost people who aren't saved he's talking about. Our lives should not be that way once we're children of God. Verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother. Now that word defraud means to take advantage of. And by the way, this is what perversion does to other people. It takes advantage of them and it uses them. Young men and young women, they get together, okay? And they, you know, they, they, they see each other, they're attracted to each other. And nowadays in culture, we, the culture teaches, okay, uh, you know, back when I was growing up, it was, you know, you get to know them, you, you, you talk to them, you compliment each other, you spend time together, and so on and so forth. Now the idea is, I can't describe this too much because we're here on Sunday morning. You know what I'm getting at. It's like full bore, okay? All the way, all the way. And what is that? That's not love, it's lust, Okay? And when people live like that, you know what you're doing? Well, I'm, the reason I'm there, we love each other. No, you're taking advantage of each other. If you really love each other, you wait. You wait until you're married. And then you have total green light. But not until you're married. Well, who believes that? God does. God believes that. And he knows what's best. And it'll affect your life. By the way, the chances of a successful marriage for people who have done that goes way down because that has been violated. You might say, well, I don't understand that. I don't fully understand it, but those are the statistics and that's, you know, that's, what, that's what happens. Now, can, that, can you still have success? Absolutely, if we do it according to God's way. Don't take advantage of each other. Look at verse eight, or verse seven. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, impurity, but unto holiness, holiness, purity. He hasn't called us to impurity. He's called us to purity. Holiness is not self-righteousness, by the way, but an inner purity that comes from walking in obedience and fellowship with God himself. I'm talking about real holiness, not self-righteousness. Verse eight. He therefore that despises, despises not man, but God who hath also given us his Holy Spirit. Now the word despise here means to reject, reject. See, Paul knew that these were strong words to a perverse culture. Paul was talking to the Thessalonians and and the world at the time and the, the area of Thessalonica, that whole region there, very perverse, very corrupt, very immoral, a lot like we have in America today. And he speaks to the culture. And don't you think it's interesting that he says here in verse 8, he therefore that despises? You know what, friend? If you're a Christian and you stand for biblical morality, you are going to be despised by people. It's not you. It's God they despise. Because God is telling them, listen, what you're doing is wrong. You need to stop it. You need to stop it. Paul says, if you reject what is written in the word of God, you are rejecting God himself. Now this is serious, and we ought to be serious about this. God is serious 
about all of his word, not just the parts of it that we like. He's serious about all of it. Let me just, because of time, let me just quote this. Proverbs chapter 30, verses five and six. Listen to this. We'll have it up here. Look at it. Every word of God is pure. Every word, every word. Not just the parts we like, but the parts that rub us the wrong way. You know what, friends? If the word of God rubs us the wrong way, we need to turn around. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Look at verse six, though. We oftentimes look at verse five. We forget verse six. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Don't tamper with it. Every word of God is pure. It's inspired. It's from God himself. Therefore, don't mess around with it. Let it stand for what it says. And if I despise the word of God, I am despising God himself. Very serious. Now, the good news is this. You could possibly be here today or maybe watching over the internet, listening to this. You might say, you know what? I'm, in, I'm living in sin of one sin or another. It could be sexual immorality. It could be this thing. It could be that thing. I'm in trouble. Well, the good news, friend, is this. God offers you a savior. God offers you the forgiveness of sin, but that is only through the payment Jesus made on the cross. These verses that we love so much around here, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. Look what it says with me. It says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. You know what grace is? Grace is unmerited favor. It is undeserved kindness. In other words, we deserve to be lost forever in hell. But God loves us so much, he says, listen, I don't want that for you. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, your sin has to be punished. But what I've done is I've sent my son to die in your place so you don't have to make the payment for your sin. And he made the payment. And if you trust in him that he did it for you, I'll give you everlasting life and you'll become my child and you'll be secure forever. You'll be my child forever. Isn't that good news? For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is believing or trusting in Christ is what it's talking about. And that not of yourselves, you're not saved of yourselves. It is the gift, gift, it's free. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God is offering today eternal life as a gift. Will you receive it by putting your faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah, no, I, I, I think I have to earn it by my good works. Friend, you've already been disqualified. You're a sinner. You're hopeless, just like all of us. Hopeless without Christ. But with Christ, he'll give you eternal life. Will you trust in him today as your savior? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.